I don't know if you ever face pressure in your life where you're like, oh, I got to prepare for this. I got to prepare for this because there's a pressure. There might be family here in this particular example, or there's four family or three families that are dedicating four children. And gosh, how do we make all of those meaningful and yet not have you be here till 2.30 in the afternoon and hear something, you know, divine from God's word? There's a little bit of pressure, and so there's some preparation that you can make for that pressure. And so how do you respond in that situation? Like, for example, last night was Halloween. It brought me back to this moment in my life of my epic Halloween. I'm talking 11 years old. I had spent three weeks preparing for this Halloween. We were going to go through three and a half neighborhoods. It was going to be about 200 to 300 homes, and we were going to traverse about, you know, well, at 11, it felt like three miles. It probably was only one, but my friend Paul and I, we'd actually mapped out how we were going to do the streets, what the costumes were going to be to make sure there was enough, you know, epicness in the costume and yet free-flowingness so that we could have um, running shoes on, so that we could jog in between pillowcases, were we going to have to make any drop-offs for the candy, plus how to get to the, um, we'll just say it, the ritzy neighborhood where they give out full-size candy bars, and the Bang residence down like the pitch black park of Death Valley there where high schoolers sometimes scare kids. We were like, if we can get through there, we can get to the Bang's house who give out full cans of Coke. Now, I'm 11. I'm not thinking through the fact that it would probably be easier to spend a dollar or two and buy these things. So we had just planned it all out. We were ready. And that afternoon, my parents said, now, Robbie, I don't know if you have any plans for Halloween, but, you know, you're 11 now. We were thinking it's about time for you. You can take your seven-year-old sister (laughs) trick-or-treating. I mean, I could have thought of all the smart things to say. Oh, mother. I can see how that would be really good for my emotional and and spiritual and mental development to care for my sister and to bring her around to have a fabulous, fabulous Halloween. But, But I regret to inform you that I already have a set of plans that will maximize my candy intake in, in a minimal amount of time. And on, uh, I did not go with that speech. Instead, I'm like, oh, mom! But I've prepared! Now I feel this pressure to take her. I don't want to, I don't know what to do. Now, maybe it's a little childish. Um, I wish I could have been prepared. I wish I could have cultivated some confidence to know what to do and how to respond in that situation. Maybe that's the question for this morning, is how do you cultivate a confidence in your life to live with and for God, to know how to respond to him in moments that are opportunities, in moments that might be peril, in moments that might be significant? Well, God's word shows us how to do that, I think, in Esther chapter 2. So if you're with us for the first time, we've been, we started this series called Esther, Faith in a Hostile World last week, and we looked at, in Esther 1, how how we, the only way to really transform the world, to really engage with the world, is to engage our culture, to reject some of it, to accept some of it, and to transform all of it, which means we need to put ourselves out there. We need to get into the world. And yet, sometimes when we do that, we're not prepared for the pressures we'll feel. Well, this week, it shows us how to prepare for those inevitable pressures. So let's take a look at 
Esther 2, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners to every province of his realm and to bring all of these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. That's where the king lived. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. And this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. We'll stop there for a moment, because a little context here. Four years have passed since the events of chapter 1, when he deposed his queen, uh, who was very beautiful. Vashti means most beloved or beautiful, very beautiful. And she stood up to him. She kind of spoke out of turn, and he's like, you can't do that, so we're going to send you away. Actually, his advisor said that. And he's kind of a little bit upset about that. It might have been the fact that he just went to go conquer some extra province in his land in Greece and had one victory and about 17 defeats. I made the 17 up. And so he came home a little humiliated, but he had no wife to come home to. And so he's feeling a little bad about himself, and his personal agenda is power and glory and ego. And so, again, he's like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have sent my queen away. But this finicky thing about Persian law, you can't rescind one of the laws once they're out. So they're like, ah, what to do? And so his advisors say, hey, I know what we'll do. We'll go find a new queen, uh, new queen and we'll go out into all the province. We'll make sure that, you know, she's not of royal birth, so she won't have any sense of equality with you so she won't stand up to you the only in fact the only two imperative qualities that we're going to have are young and beautiful what do you think i mean can you believe that there was once a culture that actually thought middle-aged men could use power and wealth to attract a woman of youth and beauty come on it's kind of funny i mean i thought about it for a while yeah a culture existed i can't believe it Now, the text says in the next section, which we'll read in a few minutes, that there was a young Jewish orphan girl who was kind of from obscurity. And since she's the hero of the story, I want you to get a sense of the pressure that she is under. We'll skip down to verse 12 before we come back. It says that before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, she would return to another part of the harem in the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So, So what we have going on here is this queen contest where if just one representative from each of the 127 provinces was given, we'd have this contest that would be more than twice the Miss America pageant, which, by the way, those women get to volunteer for. There's not really volunteering here. There's not a, oh, you know, thanks, but no thanks. There's, um, we're bringing you into this contest. So... Plus, all of these girls stay in this place that's called the Virgin's Harem, which is this um, part of the palace that's out uh, there where they can't get married, they can't get a job, 
uh, they get to go through their beauty treatments. And so they're all there, and they're all vying for the same job, to become queen. Now, I've heard it said that when a woman walks into a room, especially a new setting, I don't know this because I'm not a woman, but they walk in, and they look around, and they quickly scan the room to see who's more beautiful than they are. So I just take that to be a little bit competitive, maybe. I mean, certainly you could say that men are competitive, but there's a little bit of competitive pressure here. There's a little bit of comparison pressure going on here. I would even say that there's a little bit of of rejection pressure going on because there's one of four possibilities, or maybe five, depending on how you look at it. I mean, they can get into this harem where they're waiting around for their turn with the king, and they're preparing and beautifying, and then they can go to the king, they can have their one night, and then they're, they're like, done. They move into this other part of the harem, they're a concubine, they're not really, they can't get a job, they can't, they can't really leave, this is their life, just there. Or they could be uh, a concubine that's, that's reused, I use that term purposefully, where they have their night with the king, he's pleased, or at least in a sense that he asked this woman to come back, but she has no real rights as a wife, she just lives in this par- part of the harem now, and he calls her when he wants her. Or she could be a wife, which in terms of love and affection, is really the same as the concubine. It's just that her children, his children, her children, could actually be children that might have um, a viability for the throne. So they might be in a little bit different part of the castle. But the, the most esteemed job, the one that the, all the women want, is the queen. That's the most powerful and most favored woman in the entire empire. They all want that job. It, I hope it doesn't sound too glamorous because, again, there's not really a choice here. But in addition to the rejection pressure and the comparison pressure, there's also this perfection pressure. I don't know if you you caught the exaggerated beautification. And this is before liposuction, and this is before people could airbrush pictures, and they still had a year of getting ready for one night. So we've got a few women in the audience, so I would just like you to think about the last time you got ready for a date. Maybe it's a date that you just had, maybe it was a long time in the past, maybe it's one you're actually looking ready, um, you're looking forward to getting ready for, and with someone you're interested in. How many of you would say, you know, between the, the shower, I'm assuming, the hair, the makeup, the clothing selection, the shoe selection, which I've heard is important, the purse selection. How many of you would say, you know, I probably spent at least 15 minutes getting ready for a date? Come on. That's a lot. All right. Now, how many of you would say, we're going to go up here. So, because that, that's probably, I mean, I think even a guy can say he spends 15, maybe. Um, how about an hour? You spent an hour getting ready for a date. All right, still pretty good number of hands. I, I, I did once go out once with a girl who said she, she went through a four-hour reconstruction process. We only went out once. But, but maybe this is a f- fair question or at least humorous question. How many of you would say you spent more time actually getting ready for a date than you actually were spent on the date? How many of you had more fun getting ready for the date than you actually had on the date? <laughs> okay, I see. So there's this sense of, of pressure to, to perform, this pressure to be perfect. And, and maybe these aren't the pressures you face. 
Esther might be more unique than I think. But I think it goes way beyond the pressure to get the maximum amount of candy versus develop a great relationship with someone in your family. So what are the pressures that you face every day that you're like, I got, if I don't prepare for this, I could crumble under this pressure? What about when you're at work and someone is asking you to basically lie or deceive someone or cheat someone for the sale, for the deal? How do you, how do you respond to that? How do you prepare for that? What about in your families? When there's this moment of significance, this moment of truth, where you could actually do the right thing, say the right thing, but the cost could be major. Potential loss of relationship here if I mess this up. How do you prepare for that? The personal agendas that we have to face for pride or power that come at us every day in every way. See, Esther, I don't think is unique. We all see comparison. We all see perfection. We all see these moments of pressure that come on us. And yet, Esther seems to have this confidence to ride that through. She seems to be prepared in a way that she can make it. Because she's cultivated a confidence along the way. The first thing that I see here that she's cultivated, because um, I think there's four qualities that we can interpret from the text. So the first one is this sense of secure identity. It comes up in verse 5 and 7. It says that now, I mean, they've gone through this whole thing about King Xerxes and this whole thing about the edict where they're going to basically traffic these young gals and bring them in. And it says, now in the citadel of Susa, now in the palace, now in the city, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, rooting his identity, named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who'd been carried off from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, along with the other captives, with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. A secure identity, a rooted identity. This list of names probably isn't in direct order. It is probably hitting some of the highlights. Yes, maybe Mordecai's immediate father was Jair, but then they're hitting on this name Shimei because he was a significant person further back in the Old Testament. And Kish, Kish was the, uh, the father of Saul, King Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, who was the first king that the people elected. So Mordecai is reminding Esther of her name, like, no, your parents actually named you Hadassah, but that sounds too Jewish, so they went with Esther. It means bright star, because God's going to shine brightly on your life. And he reminds her of that. But Hadassah, that means myrtle, and don't think turtle. Think this tree that grows quickly and strong and large, because your parents thought that you were going to grow up strong and tall, that you were going to be rooted down in your royal family, in your Jewish faith, and in God's family. And I love you, Esther. Mordecai could have had a father, or could have had a wife, could have had other kids, but he took in Esther as his own daughter. She has no father or mother. She is displaced. She's dependent. But she's secure. She knows who she is because Mordecai knows who he is. And he reminds her of who she is. 
This is something that cultivates a confidence in us, that brings us a security to know that whatever circumstances come our way, that our identity goes beyond the circumstances that we live in. So how can you and I cultivate a confidence in our identity? I think, one, we can, we can listen for God. If it's hard to listen for God, we can read his word. He speaks through his word. And we can actually stop and quiet ourselves. And when we do, I found more and more, he speaks. He longs to speak to us. He actually would like to sing songs of rejoicing like we heard in one of our verses already. And if those two things are really hard, Esther had Mordecai. Esther had someone in her life who loved God, who spoke goodness into her life. Do you have a Mordecai? Can you find one? This gives security and a rootedness to her identity so her, so her identity can be dug down deep so that she can have the confidence to face the pressures. Also, we see, second thing, is that even, even after a year in the palace, a year of getting these beauty treatments and, and potentially being changed, she still knows who she is. The text says in verse 15 um, that when Esther's turn came, and it, it just gives this quote, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail. She knew who she was. Second thing we see, that this quality that can bring a good preparedness, a preparedness to cultivate this confidence, is generous relationships. I see this in verse 11, where it says, Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening about her or to her. So Esther, um, Mordecai is at the city gates. We think that he was potentially a city official of some ranking, like worked at city hall. City gates is like the town hall. It's where business is conducted a lot of the time. So he, he makes sure that he uses his, his status, he uses what God has given him to see how Esther is doing, how even after she's being provided for and cared for by someone else, that he is still caring for her. The generousness of his love is continuing to go out. He's continuing to give her advice that we'll see in the story and, and cares about her welfare. It's, it's not just love. It's a generous love. It's a sacrificial love. It's this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do for you without any thought of return to myself. At the very end of the story, there's this addendum to the story that I think we'll talk more about next week, but it, it says that, that Mordecai was at the king's gate and the harem was assembled the second time because just because he finds a queen doesn't mean he's going to stop having a harem. It's another story for another day. But there's some officials at the gate who get angry with the king and plot to assassinate him. Mordecai overhears this, tells Queen Esther, and then she, and he doesn't say, oh, by the way, Tell the king that I told you. Generous relationships. It's not for credit. He doesn't need to be recognized. He needs, he needs to just tell Esther because she's in a place where she could do something about it. Now, Esther, in turn, gives credit to Mordecai. Because I think when we see people who have generous relationships, we give generously. But somebody has to go first. Might God be calling you to go first? Have you ever prayed for patience? Because if you do, God usually doesn't give you patience. He usually gives you someone annoying to have, be patient with. It's awesome. <laughs> Sorry. 
or restoration, we like sarcasm sometimes for a teaching point. But God does say, stick yourself out there, sacrifice. And, and also, generous relationships means that we've got to receive love, even when we don't feel like we deserve it. Esther has seen this modeled to her through Mordecai, and she grows in this. It's cultivating a confidence. If, if this identity was like being rooted in the soil, then, then the generous relationships would be like seeds going into the soil. The third thing here is that we see this attitude of teachability, a teachable attitude. See, she learned from Mordecai. She continued to listen to Mordecai while she was growing up, even after she was a queen in the, ca- in the palace, or, uh, well, in the harem, and then later as the queen. But in this moment where it says in verse 15, in this moment where it finally becomes time for Esther to go in to the king, when, the, when these women can take whatever they want, Esther says to Haggai, I don't know, what would you recommend? You know the king. You bring a woman to him day in and day out. What is he like? And we don't know if like, he's like, oh, he loves the harp. Can you play the harp? Or man, he just loves this kind of perfume. We don't know that. But what we know is that Esther was humble enough to ask questions. See, teachable attitude is more than just an interest in learning. It's an attitude of our heart. So I think we cultivate a teachable attitude by asking questions that we really truly don't know the answer to. We cultivate an attitude of teachability. Now I'm going to have to just check my notes here. By finding someone who actually has experience in an area that we might not have experience in. We cultivate an attitude of teachability by seeing someone who's wise and asking to learn from them. See, that's our last quality, this practical wisdom or this practiced wisdom. We don't actually see Esther having much of this in the story yet. She kind of comes along as a flat character. She comes along as someone who really has to ask for help, who needs help all along the way. You'll see this over and over. In verse 10, Esther needs to listen to Mordecai's instruction. In verse 20, Esther needs to continue to listen to Mordecai's instruction. Esther needs, wants to listen to Haggai's instruction, but soon we'll see in a couple weeks that she's learned wisdom. She's practiced wisdom. She's learned to do the right thing at the right time for the right reason. And she becomes the heroine of the story. She becomes the one giving out the commands and the instructions. She's the one who saves the day. And so we'll see that. We just don't see it yet. If you're in a place where you're like, I just need wisdom. I don't have any. You're in a good company. Jesus gives wisdom generously. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. He longs to give it out. If you're you're thinking, I have failed. I have failed in this pressure. I buckled under it. I, I, I just haven't lived out my faith. If you're someone who follows Jesus, there's grace. And there's wisdom if we ask for it. And if you're still wondering, like, hmm, gosh, I don't know. I don't know about this Jesus thing. I don't know if it's worth it. A secure identity, generous relationships, a teachable attitude, and a practical wisdom. I would say that even if you didn't follow Christ, those would be good things for you to have. But they're not just things. They're a path to prepare ourselves 
that we can live confidently for and with God. When we do that, we find life. We find adventure. We find close relationships. We find the things that Jesus says, the way, the truth, and the life. And it's good. It's great. Imagine if you pick just one of these things, and that's my challenge to you. What do, I, what do you want me to do? I, 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 I kind of spaced out there for a couple minutes. Rob, what do you want me to do? I want you to ask God, what's one quality that you would even give me the desire to have this week? and for the next couple weeks. God, that you would put it in my life, that you would plant it down in, in, in a seed. Is it that secure identity? Or is it a more generous attitude towards relationships? Or teachability? Or this practical wisdom? God, what is it? And, and would you give it to me? Can I learn it? Ask him that. I believe he wants to answer. But if he did that, can you imagine the cult, the confidence that would start to be cultivated in your life that if you could do this that you could see when you get into these situations in your life where where you aren't sure if you're going to stand up to the pressure or someone is in a position of power and they're asking you to do something unethical you would have the confidence to be able to know what to say in a way that would still win their favor that if you had the confidence that if you were in a situation where you w- could, could share your Christian faith, that you would be able to do it in a way that would be enticing, that would be attractive. Imagine if you had the confidence that you'd cultivated, that God cultivated in you, where you could express your convictions to a world that doesn't have them, where no one else shares them. You'd shine brightly like Esther. This is a good thing. This is a great thing. You could even have the confidence if there was a moment where you needed to give so much of yourself that it would cost you dearly, that you would do it quickly. This is the life of everlasting. This is the life of goodness. This is the life that Esther is cultivating. And it's a life filled with joy. It's a life that's permeated with peace. And it's a life that points people to Jesus. What you ask him for? Pray with me. Oh God, we thank you for this story that we think that you spoke in at that time and you spoke when the writer wrote it and you're speaking truth to us now. God, you, you put Esther in a position of favor and she did become queen. And God, I believe it wasn't to to have the power, it wasn't to have the beauty, it wasn't to have the fame. It was to be prepared for a purpose that went beyond her. It was prepared and she was placed there so that she could live confidently for and with you. So that when, not if, a day of evil came, she would be able to stand up under that pressure. God, I pray for each person here, no matter what the pressure they're facing, they would sense that you are in the midst of it. That you are working behind the scenes because you are powerful and you are all-knowing and you are good. And even if it looks not so good, you might be preparing something good out of it. And God, would you use these qualities that we see in your word to grow roots and to grow up out of our life to to sprout in a way that points people to Jesus. God, if someone's here 
who's still not sure if you're the way, the truth, and the life, I pray, God, that they would see even in the midst of something not good like being taken from someone's home and being put in a contest and objectified, God, that you would still work in that. And no matter where they're at, if they felt objectified or if they felt abandoned, God, that you, they would see in this story that you, you run after people. You take them out of that place of abandon and you place them in your family. And all they have to do is say, Jesus, I want you in my life. So God, thank you for showing us that you're still at work even when it's hard to see you, even when the pressure feels great. In the name of Jesus.